0: Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman. I'm a divorce attorney in Newton, Massachusetts, and welcome to Inside Divorce, a podcast series published on the 15th of each month. Each guest is an expert in the field of divorce and has fascinating information to share. I hope you'll listen. Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman, and welcome to Inside Divorce. Today, I'm speaking with Rafe Palmer, an attorney in Chicago, Illinois, and he's going to be telling us about a new book and his life as a divorce lawyer. So welcome, Rafe.
1: Thank you, Hindel. Thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. My name is Rafe Palmer. I'm an attorney. I do divorce law. I've had a pretty diverse background before I started as a divorce attorney. I've been practicing divorce law for about 20 years, and I am the managing shareholder of a firm called STG Divorce Law, located in the Chicago suburbs. And we handle cases from Chicago all the way out to the far west suburbs of the city. So we have 12 attorneys other than me. And interesting side note, my wife is uh, my partner in the law firm. So we have a family ah, business, which is interesting. Yeah. The book is kind of born out of frustration, trying to find some source for my clients, for our firm's clients to go to, to give them sort of all the background knowledge that you and I know as divorce attorneys, but it took us 20 or 30 years to accumulate. And I wanted to kind of put a little bit of the secret sauce in a book so that our clients could have some perspective when having conversations with us, because I felt like I kept saying a lot of the same things
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that are well known to you and I as divorce attorneys, but are completely foreign to even the most sophisticated clients.
0: Yeah, for sure. It must have been cathartic to write that book.
1: It was. It definitely to get out on paper or digital paper, the thoughts I've had over the years. And there are many times, and I'm sure you've had this moment where you think, man, I wish I could if I could write a book about this, someday I'm going to write a book about this. And I finally decided with the pandemic, I'm going to write the book. That the I, time has come. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And And I didn't find anything out there in the marketplace that met this need or filled this niche. So it's not a tactical book. It's not talking about alimony or child support directly or how to win your case from a technical standpoint. It's all about mindset and how to hire an attorney, myths people have about divorce court, explaining to people the best process to resolve their case. And this is a book that applies to all 50 states. Also, will have some applicability in Canada too and England because a lot of the mindset stuff is universal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you're having your case resolved. The principles in the book are, I think, universal. And and as you and I discussed yesterday, I think we have a lot of the same thoughts about challenges in cases and, and the challenges we have resolving cases
0: yeah we do well this is going to be a podcast talking about divorce lawyer secrets and um, what we can do to help our clients get through divorce in a maybe a saner way so lots of little tidbits in your book i did read it we've had a conversation about how we practice law and our view of our clients and how we can help them best and not get sucked in i was telling you yesterday about what i called the, the passion pitfalls which is when i get too invested in a case and i just want the client to get their fair share, and I can't because I have a either an opposing attorney or a judge who just doesn't see it quite my way. You know, it's hard for me to let go too. So I certainly can understand my client's point of view on that, but I recognize it at least, and I can pull myself back from getting a little overly zealous. It's not overly litigating; it's just wanting to get the right, you know, the fair result and not being able to achieve it. So from an inside point of view, from an from my point of view, and you probably experience this too, sometimes you just have to settle yourself just like our clients do for less.
1: Right. And it's our training as lawyers is something we talk about. I talk about in the book too. Lawyers are winners. I mean, there are probably a lot of lawyer jokes that say otherwise, but mm-hmm. to get to law school alone, you have to win at several things. You have to do well in high school. You have to do well in college. You have to pass tests to get into law school. You have to pass the bar exam. These are very challenging tests people have to pass to get in. And then to become an attorney is challenging alone. So you have a winning mindset for people that generally graduate from law school. Coupled with that is the sort of the binary nature of our court system, which is a win loss system. You and I talked a little bit about this, where the system isn't really well designed for divorce cases. It's really well designed for criminal cases, for personal injury, breach of contract, when it's a binary answer, yes, no, guilty, not guilty, negligent, not negligent, and then we award damages. When we're in the equitable world of divorce, it's all shades of gray, but we are dealing with finances, we're dealing with children, a lot of complex issues, and we're trying to expect a judge with limited time and limited information to come up with a perfect solution to someone's family situation. Yeah, And that's a huge challenge for even the best judge.
0: And these judges have a huge amount of discretion. So yes, there's case law and there's precedent they rely on and there are different states have different statutes about formulas for child support, maybe a formula for alimony, but there's more gray than there is black and white. And the application of these laws is seems sometimes kind of arbitrary. Absolutely. And it's a big
1: frustration. Yeah. We have to live in this crazy world. It's a big frustration for the clients who don't understand why it isn't a certain way or why it isn't the outcome. The outcome seems very simple to them. Why isn't it this way? That doesn't seem fair, and we can explain to them. when well, the statute says this, and the case law says X, but then the judge, like you said, has tremendous discretion. And even if the case law and the statute says something, the decision might be a third option.
0: Yeah, it turns sometimes on the most minute fact, or something that you didn't think mattered a whole lot, and it matters more to the judge. And so the judge may see the case differently than precedent cases would lead you to believe, right?
1: Absolutely. And the the thing you were saying about the passion of the attorneys, the lawyers want their clients to succeed. There isn't a lawyer out there who hopes when the client hires them, I hope this client loses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really, it's really not good for business. No. I think among some clients, there's a concern that all these lawyers are in cahoots and they're going to throw me under the bus and they're just taking me for a ride. Yeah. Lawyers want to go in and do well for their clients. They want to get a five-star review on Google. They want to make the client happy and get more business, have that person rave about them to other folks. Sure. The result you were saying also, we're, you know ethically, we're required to represent our clients zealously, which means with some aplomb and passion. And like you said, it's hard as a lawyer sometimes to tell your client to maybe settle for a little less, but that is the best result for the client in the grand scheme of things.
0: Like, this is the best we're going to do. And that leads me to the cost-benefit analysis that you and I are in favor of. How do you talk to your clients about that cost-benefit analysis?
1: So one of the crucial things we talk about with our clients is, at every step of the case, starting at the beginning, what are the client's goals? What are the client's fears? What is the likelihood of achieving those goals, number one? You know, so managing expectations, making sure people understand that the goals are either achievable or not achievable, because they may just not be. Yeah. Then the next thing is, what does it cost to get from A to B in terms of time and money? And one thing people don't consider, I think, is the costs of handling a divorce case are greater than just attorney's fees. And there are really four costs to divorce. One is the, obviously, legal fees. Then you have the what I call the cash burn rate, which is Just the amount of increased spending everybody has during a divorce on things other than fees. They're buying clothes. Somebody moves out and gets an apartment. Usually spending is is heightened during the process of a divorce case. People are eating out. They're not having family dinners as much, things of that nature. And then you've got the impact on someone's business or professional career. They're preoccupied with the divorce. They're talking to their lawyer. They're thinking about it all the time. They're emotionally having a lot of challenges. So their eyes off the ball at work and that's impacting them too. Then the final cost is the emotional cost to the person and their family and friends, Mm -hmm. adding all those costs up, taking those things into consideration, weighing that versus the benefit to be gained is what you and I are very familiar with. We know this stuff inherently and we try to communicate it to our clients with varying degrees of success. And when we're considering a settlement versus trial, We're always trying to convey this. Okay, here are the possible outcomes. Usually it's a range. Here's what it'll cost to get there. And so I recommend you consider settlement option A or B because trial C is going to be not quite as good and cost more in the long run.
0: Yeah. I tell clients that getting divorced is a part-time job. And at times it's a full-time job with getting together documents, showing up in court, being available for depositions. I mean, it's enormously draining.
1: I've never heard that line. I love it. That's absolutely true. And especially with our professional clients, the business owners, these folks don't have time to be embroiled in a big divorce, and it's a big imposition on them. And there's only so much we can do as lawyers to make that burden easier.
0: Yeah, well, you know, when clients ask how much the divorce is going to cost, it's hard to estimate, obviously, because we only control half the case. Yeah, I know there's another spouse and another attorney on the other side. So, how do you do the cost benefit analysis with that big question mark of what you expect the cost will
1: be? It's obviously very challenging at the early stage. You can only give a range, and I'm sure you've had this discussion with clients many times in the last. How long will it take, and how much will it cost? The classic two questions in a consultation and knowing what you know about the general facts from what the person's telling you, and you're only listening to what they're telling you, so you're limited to what you've heard in 45 minutes maybe, you can only give them usually a fairly wide range. As time passes in the case, you get a better and better idea of what the cost will be, especially at each segment. So if they say, for example, well, I, I think we should take the depositions of X and Y people, well, you can describe to them what the benefit is of doing that. And you know pretty well what that'll cost because you can estimate, well, it'll take X number of hours to prep and three hours for a deposition plus travel time, whatever. And so I know the deposition is going to be X thousand dollars as a package. And I'm sure, you know, when you get closer to trial, you get a very good idea of what trial will cost because you can tell people on average a day of trial costs X. And I'm guessing based on my experience, your trial will be two days to four days. So X to Y, you know, so as we go along, we get a better idea, but you're right. It's hard to really give people a good estimate. One thing we're trying to shift to is fixed fees for divorce cases or segmented fixed fees to give people some certainty Uh about what each segment costs and then not have them concerned about communications and getting, paying for each call and email we're starting to introduce that in some cases. We're experimenting with it and I hope to roll it out in the next year or so. It's gonna take us some time to refine it, but we're going to offer it as an option because there are clients that still just want to do hourly because they like just the simple time and expense calculation. It's very tangible to them. Mm-hmm. I think there are some real advantages to fixed and we're, you know, we're looking to try that. Yeah. But we'll have both things available. So like you said, with estimating. It's difficult, but you can come up with a fairly good idea and weigh that against the offer that's on the table or the offer you want to make and give people some informed, kind of like informed consent in a medical situation. You just want to make sure that when people go to trial, they know damn well what the risks are and what the chances of success are. The last thing one want to have is the client at the end say, "We well, didn't warn me that it was going to be X or Y. Yeah, You didn't tell me this was going to happen. You didn't tell me it was going to cost X dollars. That's really the worst outcome for a divorce attorney.
0: Yeah, sure. So really what you are I think you're saying is that you can't estimate the cost of a divorce at the very beginning, but at times during the divorce, even when you're closer to settlement or maybe the middle, you can get a better sense of what you're up against and how hotly contested the issues are and what it might cost to get to the end.
1: Yeah. And one thing you and I talked about too was who's the judge, who's the other attorney, but backing up, what's the process we're going to follow? Are we going to handle this case collaboratively? Are we going to use assisted mediation? are we going to go to court obviously those have dramatic effect on the overall cost i know within some real a really narrow range what a typical collaborative case will take in terms of time and money and i'm sure you do too yeah and i can give people some a pretty narrow range of what it will cost to do the sort of typical collaborative case because we have these meetings you know we're doing them every 4 weeks or so yeah and we have a controlled environment and usually a team is assisting so We have a lot more control of the variables.
0: That's true. With the collaborative process, that's true. Although sometimes it can be as expensive as a litigated case, can't it?
1: True. Yeah, absolutely. And that is kind of one of the, maybe a myth about collaborative is that it's always less expensive. It's not always less expensive. It's generally less expensive, but sure, there are outliers. I had a collaborative case take two years.
0: Yeah. Well, also we bring in those the divorce coach, a financial advisor, those advisors costs. I mean, they're very valuable. I think I see the value in having them there. Sure. But there is a cost.
1: The one thing you mentioned I wanted to expand on a little bit, and that was with two lawyers, you know what you're going to do as an attorney. You know what your strategy is and your approach, what your client's situation is generally. You don't know how the other lawyer is going to handle it. I mean, unless you know them well the way I explain it to people is it's like two contractors building a house from different opposite directions and trying to meet in the middle. You're both, you don't exactly know what blueprint they're using and you're using a different blueprint. And at some point we're trying to get the floor to be level in the middle. And that's Mm -hmm. challenging. It's a good image. Yeah. And those people you're building and building and building and then you find out the floors are apart by two feet. Yeah, And then we have to bend things to get it to work, to make a case settle if it's the right thing for the clients. And you know, it it feels good when you come up with a creative solution for people that satisfies both people's needs, you know, meets their needs, but strikes a deal without having to go to trial.
0: Yeah. One of the strategies you and I talked about is inaction. I wouldn't call it delay, but it is intentional. It's the value of just waiting and not doing anything for a while, waiting for a couple of things, potentially. One is bad feelings to dissipate, which could take a while, waiting for the anger to dissipate, particularly if there's been infidelity on one side, waiting for the circumstances to settle down a little bit so people can be more rational. They get out of kind of the la-la land point of view. Right. And doing nothing also says attorney's fees, which is good, except sometimes clients really want action. What are you doing for me?
1: Right. Absolutely. They, I do have a section in the book where I say doing nothing is a strategy. Mm-hmm. And I describe what I call the airplane analogy, which is in the beginning of a divorce case, it's like getting in an airplane. There's a lot of action. People are getting on, putting their luggage away, seatbelts on, planes moving, and the takeoff is dramatic. People are in divorce case, we're filing pleadings or we're starting our meetings, that kind of thing. There's a lot going on in the beginning. Gathering documents and that kind of thing. And then in the middle of the flight, when you're above the clouds, it's boring. It doesn't seem like you're moving. Mm -hmm. It's sort of surreal. If you didn't have a GPS tracker or somebody telling you your progress, you might not really feel like you're getting anywhere. That happens in the middle of divorce cases when the lawyers are kind of like the pilots in the cockpit. We know this stuff is going on. We know that the case is moving forward. It might be moving a little less quickly than it was at the beginning, but it is making progress. And then at the end, it's usually very exciting because we're getting close to settling. There's a lot of negotiations ramp up. We're exchanging final documents and getting things ready. So we try to explain to clients to expect that middle part ahead of time so they're not shocked that it seems like nothing's going on. So they're prepared for that part. But then, like you said, sometimes the the inaction is the best thing for the case Mm -hmm. because one of the two people isn't really ready, potentially in my mind, it's like an analogy of a bridge. One person is more ready to get divorced than the other person in almost every case.
0: Well, yeah, there's the the person that initiated the divorce and the person who didn't. And the person who didn't could be our client and who's not interested in participating or getting the divorce done quickly. In fact, motivated to delay
1: the process. And the person who wants the divorce usually has been thinking about it for some time. Yes. And they've already wrapped their heads around it. And the other person may be caught by surprise. They're still going through the stages of grief, and sometimes that's denial, which means they're not moving at all. And it's very hard to expect somebody to process a settlement in a divorce case or settlement offer when they just don't want the divorce in the first place.
0: Yeah. So sometimes they don't want to even negotiate at that point, right? Right. It frustrates the other side.
1: Of course, because they're ready to go. They've one foot out the door emotionally or maybe both. And they might be living apart too, and they just want to be done. The title of my book is, I just want this done. That's a common refrain statement from almost every divorce client at some point in a divorce case. For sure, Eventually, yeah. they just want it over with.
0: <laughs> yeah. Talking about the inaction as a strategy, sometimes I use it when there's a dispute about the parenting plan, and I call it an experiment. You know, sometimes a parent who hasn't been actively involved with the kids all of a sudden wants to be actively involved in the kids. You know, sometimes I question their motives. Sometimes I think, okay, they're stepping up as a parent. I don't know which it is, but let's experiment. Give them the kids a lot of time yeah. for a period of time and see what they do. See if they actually take advantage of it.
1: If it works, great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's better for the kids. If the parent gets engaged, I think it's always worth giving that a try. Certainly courts in our jurisdiction, I think are much more willing to do that than they were in previous years. We've seen a trend. I'm not sure what's happening in your jurisdiction, but in Illinois, we've seen a real significant trend towards the, let's just say the sort of traditional, what we would call the non-custodial and non-residential parent. And that's really changing a lot. Now they're the person, they're getting. Substantially more parenting time right off the bat uh-huh. without having to fight for it. When I started practicing every other weekend and a couple nights a week was really common. Now it's much more common to have very long week, four day, three day weekends, overnights during the week, you know, three, four schedules, two, two, three schedules, things like that.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious because nesting here is something that's rather controversial. Most judges don't like long term nesting arrangements. You know what I mean by nesting? Is yeah,
1: absolutely it? do. Okay. Yeah. I
0: didn't know it was a, an expression in, common in Illinois. What are you finding that the judges in Illinois do with nesting arrangements?
1: Nesting's, just like you said, very uncommon. I think most judges are skeptical that it will be successful because the folks have to live very close together, have a very high degree of cooperation. And I think courts feel that long term, it just won't work out as new significant others come into the game and other children from other future spouses, that kind of thing. Nesting might work in a short-term environment, but I think you're right. I think courts are very skeptical that nesting will really work for anybody Mm long-term. I've had very limited, I can only think of one case where I saw it done in one of my cases where it continued to function well afterward. And they were, those folks were at very high degree of cooperation, lived very close together. It was sort of all the right circumstances combined.
0: Yeah, it does have to be a combination of good factors. You know. I have a case now that's going to be heard in August where they're nesting until the youngest graduates from high school. Originally, they, had, they were going to nest until the youngest graduated from college, and we encouraged them to pull that back a little bit. That was going to be seven years.
1: Right. They
0: get along very well, but I just wondered what was going to happen.
1: That's interesting, yeah.
0: Anyway, we'll find out what the judge does. Another thing we thought was important was communication.
1: It's absolutely essential that the communication be good in a number of ways. One, that the divorcing spouses are communicating as well as possible. And I do tout the value of counselors in terms of helping people communicate and deal with their emotions that naturally come up in divorce and avoiding dumping on family and friends too much with your divorce because you may think it's fascinating, Mm. it's all-consuming to you, but eventually it wears your family out. You know They're going to be cheerleaders for you. They're going to be in your corner. But at some point, they're not going to want to hear about it all the time. And a counselor is happy to talk to you about it. And getting the right kind of counselor, divorce coach, who's not just a cheerleader for you, but somebody who will critique you when you need to be critiqued, give you positive encouragement, but also fair criticism when you might need it, and guidance about how to deal with communicating with your future ex or soon-to-be ex, communicating with your children. All that stuff is essential in terms of, it's good for your own mental health, for one thing, to try to maintain these relationships as best you can. But number two, to make progress in your divorce, if your spouse thinks you're a jerk and you're treating them like a jerk, it's going to be that much harder to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And a little sugar goes a long way Yeah. in terms of making people want to settle a case.
0: Yeah. I encourage people to change the dynamic between the spouses because obviously the dynamic has gotten pretty bad if they were coming to us for a divorce. So changing that dynamic. So it's a person who used to be meek, suddenly not aggressive, but just confident and with an opinion and not a pushover any longer. And the person who's the aggressor or the bully, you know, should really tone it down a little bit. So change the dynamic. Each one of them kind of move to the middle.
1: Right, and think about it. don't send the nasty text message, don't send the nasty email. Those things, first of all, can be used in evidence. Don't send nasty stuff on social media, can also be used in the case against you. And those things are hard to pull back. When you launch those bullets out there, they can't be put back in the proverbial gun. They hurt people and they make the person sending that stuff out there look bad. And it impacts the person in many ways that they may not even realize. These types of things first of all, impact the spouse, the children, friends and family see this stuff and it reflects poorly on them. Even if they're not the original bad guy, so to speak, even if they're venting because the other person did the bad thing, whatever the bad thing is, if they're bad mouthing them to a degree that's unreasonable, it just doesn't look good. And people start feeling that sort of victim is actually not the victim. It breeds real resentment. And it just creates this downward spiral, which tends to drive people toward litigation or worsening litigation to no good end. Yeah, And it's like two countries negotiating to try to avoid warfare. Mm -hmm. If the ambassadors are able to talk and they're trying to communicate and they're trying to be open, they have a much better chance of success than if everybody just folds their arms, starts saying nasty things to each other and walks away.
0: Or spits and pokes each other in the eye. Yeah.
1: There's no profit in it.
0: So, Rafe, I thought we'd talk a little bit about how to hire a divorce lawyer, what things people should look for, what should they avoid, what red flags, how to to create a a good relationship with their lawyer.
1: I'll be interested in your thoughts, too. But I I think starting with you want to look for a lawyer or law firm that does nothing but family law and divorce. Dabblers or part-time attorneys for this aren't suitable. There's too much involved too many levels of complexity. You want to work with an experienced divorce attorney who knows the ins and outs of this world because there's so much involved in in divorce and family law, as you know. Inexperience can really cost the client a substantial amount of money and time. We find ourselves the second lawyers in a lot of cases when folks aren't satisfied with the first attorney. So always look for an experienced firm. You're going to spend a little more money, but like anything that's worth paying for, the experience is worth the money. So an experienced firm that's dedicated to family law and divorce, number one. Number two, client reviews online are very useful. Avo.com is one option. Google, obviously, a good place to look for a firm's reviews. That's one indicator. It's not perfect, but you'll see what other clients have said about the attorney. That's useful. Getting an impression of their customer service, how they take care of clients and respond. That's good to see. Also, organizations like uh, the if someone's involved in the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, that they've got extra vetting that other lawyers don't have in family law. Or, of course, a certification is required in some states for divorce law or family law. Our state doesn't require certification. Others do. So obviously, that's really, in some states, that's a must. That's actually a prerequisite for someone handling a divorce case. Hmm. And the other thing is approach. So I'd suggest you look for an attorney that has a background with ADR alternative dispute resolution has some experience with mediation, collaborative law, potentially arbitration, and also litigation. So you're not just getting the old joke about if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have an attorney with a diverse background and a and broad set of tools, you're gonna find somebody who's probably gonna be best suited to handle a variety of situations.
0: Yeah, yeah. What do you do with the client who wants a pit bull? They come in wanting you to start the game with the first punch.
1: If it's merited, if it's warranted, then that's fine. But one thing that I've thought about internally and talked to clients about is we're not hitmen. We're not here to destroy your spouse. If that's what you're looking for, you're hiring the wrong law firm. So... If you want to settle or res- get your case resolved at trial in a business-like manner as efficiently as possible, we're your lawyers. Yeah, But I'm not interested in being, nobody's paying us enough to be vindictive or nasty or be angry at their spouse for them. One of the things I always talk about is we're not wearing our client's problems. Mm-hmm. I'd need to be paid three times as much to actually wear their own problems and become emotional about their case. A lawyer who becomes personally vested in the client's case loses perspective and stops being objective, that would be like a doctor who gets too personally invested in the patient to see things clearly. And then you're not going to give the best advice.
0: Yeah, I agree. I tell clients, our listeners can't hear this, but I have a lot of hair in my head. So (laughs) I say I have a, I have good antenna under here. And so I start off nicely and respectfully and professionally. And I hope that it's reciprocated by the other attorneys and other spouse and if I sense though that it's going off the rails because they decide they're going to to take the most aggressive position or unreasonable position, and I talked to the client, and I said, I think what they're saying and what they're doing are inconsistent. You know, maybe we should look at this in a slightly different way. Right. But you're right. There are clients who come and just want us to be the, the what you're called the hitmen. It's not a role that I like
1: either. When you see that too, you know that you're going to be the next target. So these are people that are. They're just kind of mad at the world and it's going to be, you'll be the next problem. So Mm -hmm. your spouse is the problem now and they want you to use, first of all, litigation is the worst way to beat somebody up. It's like punching yourself in the face because every dollar you're making them spend is a dollar you're spending.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You're kind of cutting your own throat by trying to use litigation as a weapon. The other thing is, It's never going to come out the way people want it. It's one of the myths about trial, as you and I talked about yesterday, that there's this big day that happens, a big trial day, big dramatic thing, and the judge hits the bad person with a lightning bolt, and the good person gets a halo, and one person gets all the money, gets all the kids, and the other person is left sent packing. It just doesn't work like that. And nobody gets this great day of vindication where they can say, see, I told you so. It almost never happens like that. Right. Yep.
0: It's an expensive lesson, a very expensive lesson.
1: Feeling good about being angry or feeling good that you got their goat or whatever, you beat them up in court or whatever it is, that's going to fade as this person's kids don't want to talk to them anymore. As people think they're a jerk, they realize later they spent double the money they needed to spend and they didn't get a materially better result. Those effects are going to last years or decades. The momentary feeling of revenge, I think I say in the book that line about revenge, you know, if he, he seeks revenge should dig two graves. <laughs> and it's it's true because you're both, uh-huh. it never pays.
0: Well, it's not productive either, right? Doesn't pay. And in a divorce, it's not productive. It may have a temporary feeling of elation, but in the end, it doesn't get you a better divorce.
1: We also talked briefly about the meta case, the idea of all the stuff around the case. Well, if you've been a jerk in the case and you're using litigation to beat up the other person, the court's not stupid. The judge gets a feeling that this is going on. If your party's bringing motion after motion after motion to no real material effect, the judge gets wind of that. And what do you think the court's going to do when the decision is on the bubble or the judge isn't sure about which way to go? It's going to go against the person that the judge perceives to be wearing the proverbial black hat or being the evil person.
0: Yeah. We're driving up the costs for no legitimate reason. Seeming frivolous. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap it up, what do you think you would recommend to divorcing people as a strategy? What tips do you have for them?
1: Step one, always consult with a qualified divorce attorney. Even if you don't decide to hire them, ultimately consult with one, two, or three lawyers ahead of time about your case. I recommend obviously working with a skilled divorce lawyer for your case, whether you do it through mediation, collaborative law, arbitration, or litigation. That's essential to get quality advice to know what you're doing, because the internet, while it's a source of more information than ever, there's also a lot of bad and incorrect information out there, or it's outdated, or you're looking at stuff from the wrong jurisdiction. So get a lawyer, number one. But then my best advice is try your best to have a business-like approach with the divorce, keeping your emotions as much out of it as possible. Use a cost-benefit analysis at every step of the way, not just the financial cost, but your emotional cost. And understand that there is a value in just being done. Mm-hmm. There's a great value in just being done, and keep that in mind. Being willing to give a little bit, maybe a little bit more than you should, goes a long way to repairing your family relationships and moving you, getting you out of there, and moving you on to the future, where you can rebuild your new life and get this in the rearview mirror.
0: Yes, and those are all very good tips for people who are listening. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure getting to know you, and I encourage people to read your book. Would you could give us the title again?
1: The title is I Just Want This Done, How Smart, Successful People Get Divorced Without Losing Their Kids, Money, and Minds on Amazon. Also be on Barnes & Noble July 15th. Available for pre-order now on Amazon as and the Kindle format at this time. Wonderful. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much. The pleasure has been all mine, Handel. Thank you very, very much.
0: All right. Take care. Enjoy the summer.
1: You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Sassoon Simrod has attorneys who meet your dynamic needs handling legal matters including tax issues, real estate transactions, business law, and of course divorce and post-divorce matters. I can be reached to the same number, 617-969-0069, but my email address has changed. It's now H Grossman at Sassoon Simrod. Com. Sassoon Simrod is spelled S A S S O O N C Y M R O T. Thanks for listening.